Hello, and welcome to the second of our three podcast episodes on what they didn't tell me about caregiving, inspiring and insightful stories of people caring for family members living with a neurological disease amid the demands of their own lives. These episodes have been created with the financial support of Novartis and are brought to you by Parkinson Canada, the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada, and the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. In this episode, we will hear from April, who married a person with multiple sclerosis and ultimately became his caregiver. We'll hear from April about how she handled that change in her relationship, along with her thoughts on coordinating care and dealing with the feelings of guilt and the invisibility that caregivers can experience. Here's April. My name is April Watson. I live in Surrey, British Columbia. Um, I was a caregiver to my husband, Greg Hind. He had MS for the entire 20 years that I knew him. Uh, He passed away last year due to complications from his MS. So I'm no longer his caregiver, but uh, for the 10 years before he passed away, he was using a wheelchair and I was effectively his caregiver from the time he started using a a wheelchair. We started out with, um, we were going to have to do an awful lot of research to find out what our life might like be like going forward. Um, it answered some questions we had about some of the things that he was having difficulty with at the time, but he wasn't having um, super, you know, major symptoms. He wasn't using a wheelchair. He was walking and talking and, you know, fully functional and self-supporting and, um, didn't require that much assistance and even when we married he did not require a large amount of caregiving we when we married we were equal partners but we also knew that it could get different and we knew we knew we had some idea what it might look like by the time we married but i married him knowing he had ms we were we were actually relieved because we thought it could be a lot worse first thing we started out with was, of course, the visits to the neurologist's office, and we did all of that together. All the MRIs, I was with him. All of the visits to the neurologist's office, I was with him, listening to what they had to say and how this could progress. Uh, we contacted the, um, through the neurologist's office, they put us in touch with the MS Society in Burnaby, and we attended some of their educational um, workshops for people that were newly diagnosed and so you know we went there and we were able to ask doctors you know what is this going to look like what can we do to protect our health and by and large um, other than using a wheelchair Greg was an incredibly healthy man right up till about 2016 when it really started to um, late 2015 and 2016 it started to affect his brain more i guess the lesions were in his brain were on wherever that you know they were affecting his brain it, prior to that it had been just affecting his um physical body where he was using a wheelchair and he couldn't walk but his brain was fully functionally was capable of conversation but then he started having more symptoms in 2015 and 2016 and with the brain involvement he ended up in a nursing home so um, but through that we attended many 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 
um, educational forums put on by the MS Society and we continued to go to the MS clinic and see the doctor there um, and check in with this neurologist and just you know see what life you know we were always researching what might be better treatments as he started with the sundowning and having problems at nighttime then we switched up I stopped working full-time we switched up our days in order that we would go take our coffee together and have our breakfast together instead of waiting you know when we were younger uh, and in better health we would have our night times together we would <laughs> sit and have a glass of wine and talk over the day and instead we switched that to the mornings and we thoroughly enjoyed each other's company and there were lots of good times um, when Greg was 60 and this was the beginning of the real um, <laughs> the real downhill slide it was probably our last it wasn't our last vacation together, but it was probably our last really enjoyable trying to have a vacation. I took him to the spa that's because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to go to the spa. And, um, you know, I took him to Sparkling Hills in Vernon, B.C., which is a really ritzy, beautiful spa. And we had a really good time. His sister and brother-in-law came up and joined us. And then we came home and we had his 60th birthday party and he had a wonderful time. He felt very pampered and it was just wonderful. Christmas was wonderful. And that following year, he'd had a lot of little illnesses and I think that's where the deterioration started. I did seek help from the family and from, you know, and I hired a housekeeper to help keep up with the housekeeping. Um, we did get family support where events at night that Greg maybe didn't want to attend and I really did like weddings etc that maybe he didn't know the couple because you know we're a late in life marriage so I've got a lot of friends and family that he really didn't know from many moons ago and as he got more he as he got more progressed in his disease he didn't like to go out at night and I've only just turned 60 I don't like to stay home at night <laughs> I still <laughs> like to go out and dance and go to weddings and stuff like that and so we would I would reach out to family and friends and say you know there's this event on Saturday night but I'm going to need someone who's going to um you know help me by staying around with Greg or I would get a carried to come in and it, when he was still much better I would have a carried come in and assist him into bed at 10 o'clock and I would just call up the case manager and say I am going out on Saturday night and somebody's going to need to be on hand to put Greg into bed and so they would pick a time that they were going to come and put him into bed and that would be fine and he had a TV in the bedroom and they would get him, once he was in bed, he was generally fine. Once in a blue moon he might fall out, but not very often in those days. And so we, we have been fortunate to be surrounded by a loving, caring community. And, you know, that certainly has helped me retain my sanity. We never lost his love for me as I never lost my love for him. And I know that sounds sappy, but 
in the very end when he was in the care home he was having some problems with his brain and some dementia he didn't really remember who I was one day and I pushed him from the dining room back into his room and then I sat down in the chair and he put his hand out to shake my hand and he said hi my name's Greg and I said took his hand humored him I said my name's April he said I saw you sitting there and I wondered if you'd like to go out for coffee with me sometime <laughs> I said you know absolutely and then I started laughing and I said but unfortunately I have some bad news for you that deal was sealed like 13 years ago we've already been married for 13 years and you're stuck with me now buddy <laughs> but, you know we both had some really good laughs and um, you know that to me he still had his attraction to me he still had enough you know wherewithal to go I'm gonna act on it because I like this woman I like how she looks and you know we have had a lot of good laughs even even the weekend he he passed away um, he he was almost comatose and when I was telling him that you know we were gonna take him home because he was in the hospital and we were gonna put him back send him back to the care home so he wasn't in a ugly old hospital room when he went he managed to get his arm up around and give me a hug I was right with him right to the bitter end I my his sister was with him as well um, everybody that was in town was able to come and say goodbye and you know it was if you have to go he went surrounded with people who love him my experience as a caregiver wasn't with a parent or a child or a friend or someone I was being paid to look after it was a man that I was very much in love with and we had a lot of good times in there even right up until the bitter end we had a lot of good times the staff, the support staff, the occupational therapists, the physical therapists, everybody that is dealing, helping you deal with someone with a serious illness or a disability like MS, they focus in on that person and they tend to forget with their solutions that I, as a caregiver, that I matter too. So they'll come up with a solution that would completely turn our home which was our home that we loved and we were you know proud of both of us Greg and I we loved our home I still live there but we loved our home we loved our house we had bought ourselves a big beautiful brand new bedroom suite and one of the occupational therapists because Greg had was having some difficulty the care aides this the paid staff were having trouble getting him out of bed as they're only not allowed to do certain things and that might hurt themselves and the initial solution that they wanted to do was that we got rid of our king-size bed that we slept in together and brought in a hospital bed and I'm I mean I I said and Greg said no he wanted to sleep with his wife and we came up with our own creative solutions to the problem but that was their first solution well you don't need to sleep with her anyway and it was like wait a minute we are a couple 
And our relationship and our home is what matters to the two of us. To crawl into bed at the end of the day together and at least have that time where you get to wrap your arms around somebody. The only time, once somebody's in a wheelchair, the only time you get serious, comfortable, physical contact with your husband is when you're laying down. You, you hug someone in a wheelchair is the most awkward thing in the entire world. Somebody's butt is sticking up in the air, you're bent over, and you can hold your hug for, you know, five seconds. And you can't hug, you can't touch, you can't stroke. So you are sleeping together, you've got an arm around each other, you're twining your legs together, you cuddle up in the bed together. In the case of a married couple where one's disabled, that's often the only time you get any serious physical communication is sleeping together. And so their very first thing was, well, this bed isn't working, so we, you should get a hospital bed. And I was like, no bloody way. Nobody thought about what my needs were. He started having, you know, bigger symptoms. He was sundowning, which anybody who's familiar with MS is in the evenings they he start to fall asleep by seven o'clock at night and he would sit on the couch and be sleeping through the whole evening um, but with that sleeping he also had and again I'm delving in very deeply here but he had um, something that the doctor called myoclonic jerks and they're these big spasms that people with MS sometimes get and this big spasm would cause his entire body to I guess I don't know if you'd have it contract but he would throw his arms like he would kind of hunch over and pull himself in and then his fingers would clench his hands would clench and he would be making fists but once he made that fist he would then, as soon as he got in, like as tight as he could be, it was like being a spring, if this makes any sense. And it would just pop, and his arms would go out, his legs would go out, his body would spasm. And if he was sitting in his wheelchair, he would often hurl himself out of his wheelchair, and then he would be down on the floor, and I would have to get him up. And at that time, we well, we continued to sleep together until he went into the care home. But I would wake up in the middle of the night. I, I never slept because he would have these spasms in the night. And even in a king-size bed, I can't begin to tell you the amount of times I was punched in the head in my sleep, woken up of a sound sleep by getting a fist to the face. So you learn to sleep in a fetal position facing away from your husband so he can only hit the back of your head because I didn't want him to break my nose. And this went on for months and months and months and there was no sleep. There was never enough time for me to just be able to say, you know what, things are good right now and I'm good because even if I had Greg in bed, I still had to be on guard. I was stressed to the max. It often became at times unbearable and people around me, they told me to take every bit of respite care that I was entitled to, that the government would help with, every opportunity that I had to sort of 
let someone else take care of Greg's needs and have me looking after me but of course I didn't do that because every single time I took time away from Greg I ended up feeling guilty because by that time I could see that our time together was getting shorter and shorter and I wasn't ready for that so I would feel guilty but I would be overwhelmed and I would wake up in the morning and going I just don't know how much longer I can do this and I just don't know if I can get through this day. When you hear from sisters and cousins and whatnot who've never lived through what you're living through and they're telling you that you know you should take all your respite care or you should take a break it somehow it's not as powerful as when that other person that you are aware has lived through the same stuff that you're living through that they've been there firsthand they've been in the trenches and they're saying April you need to take a break go away do your vacation and don't feel guilty and take that vacation and put your feet up and when those people are speaking who've been through it it is somehow a little more powerful and a little it goes a little bit more towards reassuring you that you're not being selfish that you know you're not just being a cold heartless bitch while you leave your husband in a care home for someone else to deal with him who who doesn't even know him because that's the nature of respite care you go where there's a placement you go where they put you so you may never go to the same place twice you don't know the staff you know you don't these people don't know your husband they, they don't know your person and so you're sending them there and you're thinking well what kind of heartless bitch does this and goes on vacation for a week to drink and carouse and sit on the beach and soak up the sun and enjoy yourself well when you start talking to other people who've lived through it you realize the kind of person who does that is the kind of person who's trying to maintain some semblance of their sanity so they can get up tomorrow when they come back from vacation and do it all over again if you don't take your vacation time and I'm here to tell this to every caregiver if you don't take your vacation time and you don't look after yourself you can't possibly look after your your person you've been listening to April talk about her caregiver journey with multiple sclerosis we hope you found her story helpful we would like to thank April for sharing her experience. We encourage you to share her story and like and follow the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada on Facebook and Twitter. For more information about multiple sclerosis, check out mssociety.ca and find out how the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada can help. In our next and final episode, we'll hear from Kathleen, whose mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. If you would like to reach us, email us at podcasts at discoverycampus.com. Thank you for listening to What They Didn't Tell Me About Caregiving.